This Radio New Zealand Insight programme looks at fears New Zealanders trying to strike deals in China are losing out because of cultural clumsiness. Those helping ease the way for New Zealand-China trade say the Chinese side of the bargaining table often has the upper hand because New Zealanders have scant knowledge of Chinese traditions and language. Sally Round's been looking into efforts to overcome the divide. These kindergarten children can't wait for the next quirky toy to appear from their teacher's bag of tricks. Here at Kristen School in Albany on Auckland's North Shore, Edith Poon is wearing bright pink mittens with a different toy animal on each finger. Now she's kicking like a kung fu star, then standing still as a soldier. Mandarin comes alive in her classroom, and these preschoolers are gripped. They start teaching Chinese early at Kristen, an independent school which goes right through to the end of school at year 13. New Zealand children don't have to learn a foreign language under the school curriculum. But at Kristen, all juniors learn Mandarin and are introduced to Chinese culture. Seniors on the school's International Baccalaureate program must also take a foreign language. The school's head of languages is Maureen Gotthard. Chinese, you know, is a difficult language to learn. It's, it's got the tones that the students have to pick up. Also, the alphabet is different. It's a, a pictorial alphabet with the characters. Um, but we think that because we introduce our students to Chinese in the junior school, when they are at their most open to, to new ideas and new language, when they don't have any inhibitions um, about learning the language, we, we think that we are giving them a very good platform for future language, whether that be Chinese or whether it be that they change their language as they move through the school. So this is our fale. Um, Further south at ethnically diverse Unahanga High, the many Chinese market gardening families in the area helped prompt the school to bring in Mandarin as an option 20 years ago, well before it became fashionable. Principal Deirdre Shea explains. It was quite different and not, not well accepted by everybody. One of our contributing intermediates uh, taught Japanese then, still does, and that's great. Uh, but they were a little aghast that we, we weren't doing the same as them. The choices around languages, though, are changing. We've noticed that with uh, our other language offerings of Māori and French, um, where, where people are making different choices from what they used to, and our enrolments for next year already indicate uh, a swing towards Chinese. The statistics show Mandarin's becoming increasingly popular, but the take-up's still low. Last year, more than 50,000 students were learning French, and just under 7,000 learned Chinese. As the Prime Minister John Key pointed out recently, Mandarin's only just overtaken Latin in popularity, a situation he describes as woeful. Mr Key says he wants more New Zealanders to learn the language of this country's second biggest trading partner, and that excites language teachers. They say it's rare for the teaching of any foreign language to receive such a stamp of approval from the top. 
Few non-Chinese leaders could match the Mandarin skills of Australia's former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. John Key's sudden interest in the language is undoubtedly economically driven. China's helped shield this country from the worst of the recession. And the colour of money is adding an extra sheen to long-held friendly ties between the two countries. Hello, friends in New Zealand. It is good to be able to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and to be able to thank those who have helped us here in Sandan with the little constructive peace job we try to do in this corner of our struggling world. New Zealander and official friend of China, Rewi Ali, has been the poster boy for New Zealand's China relationship. He spent 60 years in China as a teacher and social reformer, becoming a member of the Chinese Communist Party. Glass, pottery, leather and paper are made. Lays kept going and iron is smelted. All by girls and boys who have not known of these things before. That was China in 1960. Rewi Ali died in 1987, as the country was striking out on a more capitalist road. More than 20 years later, it signed a free trade agreement with New Zealand, the first such deal with a developed nation. John Key wants to see a doubling of trade from 10 to $20 billion within five years. But there are fears scant knowledge of China's culture and language is hampering New Zealand business. A clear message is the FTA gives us only a very narrow window of opportunities because China is negotiating free trade agreement with other countries. Ke Feng Chu is Director of Operations for China at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. He says New Zealand business people are learning the ropes but don't yet match their Chinese counterparts when it comes to knowledge about those on the other side of the negotiating table. Uh, there was a typical time. A delegation member was there and with other New Zealanders having meetings. The New Zealand side was asking about, do you know New Zealand? Have you been here? And, and, and was introducing New Zealand to this delegation. The head of the delegation said, I've been here five times already. I've been visiting your country from north to the south. And he spoke perfect English. And that's the advantage that they have. An increasing number of New Zealanders doing business with China are making the effort to learn Chinese. This school and business consultancy offers night classes in several languages. Euro-Asia's director, Kenneth Leong, says Mandarin has recently overtaken Spanish as the center's most popular language. People get caught up with uh, getting the phrasing and the grammar right, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is having the right words and getting it out there. The structure is less important. Uh, as long as the other party gets the message, that's what matters. Ken Applegate is an investment fund manager and travels frequently to China. I use it um, from, a, from a social perspective. I also do use it from a business perspective, but it's less having an entire conversation. It's more to show that we are trying to learn, that we are trying to create a relationship with you. And also when they speak, I can pick up some phrases, some, um, some numbers, which are important in business. And also it's good to, um, to know when they're asking a question or to, to, to know the form of the way they're asking things. So you can actually follow along to a certain degree. He says the language gives him an in on the culture. 
Euro-Asia's Kenneth Leong says this can be subtle and nuanced, especially when it comes to striking a deal. Who sits where? Who walks in first? Uh, who walks in second? How do you tell if a certain person in a large group is the leader? A lot of these subtleties that Kiwis would not take notice of. From talking to a number of business people, I have discovered quite a few of these、uh, business deals have fallen over because the New Zealand side has committed a number of cultural、uh, faux pas or are unable to understand where the other party、uh, is coming from. The worst thing is often the Chinese business person might not even tell you why、uh, they have decided to not proceed. So our business people are left guessing. I had a business person tell me about his frustrations in dealing with a, a Chinese partner. He's been leading him on to believe that the Kiwi guy would get the deal, and in the end,、uh, the Chinese party said no. As he told me the story, I realized that the writing's、uh, on the wall. Just that the Kiwi guy just couldn't see it. Often, a lot of Chinese business people might not say no because they don't want to cause anyone to lose face. Just by not saying no doesn't mean it's a yes. The answer was definitely no when British emissary Lord Macartney travelled to China in 1793. He sailed there with a delegation of 100 diplomats, scholars, artists, and scientists. His mission was to persuade the Emperor Qianlong. To open the Chinese Empire to Western trade. During the voyage, a 12-year-old diplomat's son, Thomas Staunton, busied himself learning Mandarin from the two Chinese priests who were interpreting for the expedition. Lord Macartney's two-year endeavour has become notorious, not for its failure, but for the clash of two very different cultures. Lord Macartney returned from China without concessions, but there was at least one success. Young Thomas Staunton's chat with the Emperor in his own language so impressed Qianlong, he gave the boy a rare personal gift. It would also have surprised him, because at that time foreigners were forbidden to learn Chinese. But more than 200 years later, it's China which is now on a mission to charm the world with its culture and language. 真奇怪，真奇怪。Have you heard of this song before? Yeah, maybe it's a French, French song. Okay, we just put, we just put Chinese words inside, and I think you will learn this song fast. Okay,、um, first you read after me. 两只老虎 Twenty-five-year-old Zhang Dongyin. Is one of eight Chinese language assistants helping in New Zealand classrooms. The program's a partnership between the New Zealand and Chinese governments. She's been sharing her time between three Wellington schools, and today she's with ten-year-olds at Brooklyn School. I tell students that there are 1.3 billion people in China, and also on, in New Zealand on the street you will see many Chinese people, and you can feel the importance to learn Mandarin. <laughs> I tell them that Zhang Dongyin will lead the class if the teacher doesn't speak any Chinese, but sometimes she takes more of a backseat role. Brown. Brown. Blue. Blue. 
Teacher Anthony Greddigs had a month's Mandarin immersion at Beijing University. He's back teaching and learning it at the same time. You always try to stay a little bit ahead by, you know, rehearsing beforehand or finding out the correct pronunciation beforehand, so you're always that step ahead of them. Is that a good idea for the kids? I mean, perhaps your pronunciation may be not quite, you know, the standard pronunciation. Do you find there's some challenges? Definitely. Uh, that's why having Dong Yen's been really helpful because she um, has been able to correct me if I'm wrong in a nice way. But, uh, yeah, quite often you'll find that, oh, it's not actually like that. Especially when you talk to someone who actually speaks Mandarin and you'll say something and they don't actually understand you. Yeah, because the tones are very important. <laughs> It's break time and the children crowd around Zhang Dongyin in the corridor. They love her tongue twisters. Zhang Dongyin and Anthony Gredig are part of an effort to get round the shortage of well-qualified Chinese teachers in New Zealand. The assistant program is one of several supported by the Confucius Institute in Auckland, which has recently provided $250,000 to set up new Confucius classrooms in the country, helping local schools with resources and teachers. Demand is growing. However, the schools offering Chinese is still limited. Director Nori Yao says the aim is to have 50,000 New Zealand schoolchildren learning Chinese by 2012. Not only the language, the culture as well, because the language is not the code. Language is part of the culture. So that for the schools that probably at this stage not able to offer Chinese language, but definitely they, they have no excuse not to offer Chinese culture into it. Chinese is not only a language of our in Asian region, it's also one of our multicultural, multilingual society. The Institute's a partnership between Auckland University and the Chinese government's cultural arm, Hanban. Observers studying the rapid rise of these institutes around the world say they're part of China's so-called soft diplomacy. In reaching out for a global role, it needs to present a benevolent and cooperative face to the world. Spreading the Chinese culture and language, they say, is part of that. But there have been fears in some countries about possible political interference and self-censorship. Noriao says there's nothing aggressive about what they do. They're no different to France's Alliance Française or the Goethe Institute of Germany, promoting culture and language around the world. We just choose the most common practical topics to offer, for example, like festivals, like greetings, and talk about your families. So all the topics we, we will share with our friends. And of course there are different issues may come out. And uh, the best way is we will look at the facts, rather put any personal comments onto it. And our children, they actually have very creative ideas. They, they are very good at a judge by themselves if we provide the real facts to them. One of the biggest barriers against more schools taking up the language is its perceived difficulty. It has four tones to master and a different grammatical structure and writing system. I think that parents are concerned about something being too hard for students. Interestingly, we're seeing a turnaround in that. Linda Tame is principal of Lincoln High School in Christchurch. People are now realising that the language actually is, is, is OK to learn. It's, it's quite accessible and, and any student can study it. An observation, perhaps, that goes to prove China's soft diplomacy is working. 
Linda Tame points to the huge financial support for the language there is in New Zealand. There are definitely plenty of opportunities, far more opportunities for subsidised trips to China than there are to any French-speaking nation. And where does that money come from? I believe that some of it comes from city councils. Um, that, that seems to be one of the main areas. There are also businesses interested in working closely with schools that offer Mandarin. Um, we have just begun a, a business um, partnership with Costco, the Chinese Overseas Shipping Container Organisation, who uh, bring large container ships every week into Littleton and then go straight up to China with them. So there are all sorts of people interested in young students actually having a bit of a knowledge of Chinese. OK, everyone, um, we're about ready to start. Language teachers, academics and Sinophiles have gathered at the offices of the Human Rights Commission to mark International Languages Week. The topic for discussion, New Zealanders should be learning Chinese. We're not here in competition, so even though Spanish may be on the rise and Japanese may be on the decline and German was a 60s thing. Um. <laughs> Jokes aside, the Race Relations Commissioner Joris de Bress had serious words for the government to consider over what he called its dead duck of a language policy in schools. The issue of languages in New Zealand remains one that I think is under-addressed in our public policy, under-resourced in our schools and communities and universities, and uh, undervalued compared to the way uh, languages are treated in other countries. Mr DeBress says New Zealand's Bill of Rights guarantees people's right to practice their own culture and speak their own language. He says the community and the state need to support that diversity in an increasingly multicultural society. Mr DeBress says foreign language learning should become a core component of the school curriculum and more resources need to be found. I come from a country, the Netherlands, in which it is pretty well automatic for people to learn at least four languages. And Dutch people don't therefore fail to make a contribution to society or fail to learn other things. I think in many other countries it's pretty widely recognised bilingualism or multilingualism is an educational asset and a social asset and an economic asset. Tony Turnock of the Ministry of Education is involved with the curriculum. He says it now puts a lot of focus on foreign language learning at intermediate level and there's much support for a variety of languages. It is difficult for us to be able to say, yes, something should be compulsory. What we do say is that there are mandatory aspects of New Zealand curriculum that all schools must, must reflect on and think about when they're developing their school-based curriculum. What we want to see through the New Zealand curriculum, and it very clearly articulates, is that schools need to be listening to their community. Schools need to be looking at the students they have in front of them and developing relevant, well-contextualised learning programmes that meet those needs. That's Samuel Taylor, a senior student at Kristen School, practising conversation with his Chinese teacher. I'm in year 12 and I've been learning Chinese ever since I came to Kristen in year 9. Chinese is his favourite subject and he's enjoyed seeing what he's learnt come alive on an exchange trip to China. It's really cool to actually be able to kind of talk to people and not kind of have the 
awkward not being able to con- communicate and everything. Yeah. So that opened a few doors for you, did you? Did it when you when you were able to communicate with kids your own age in China? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, because of that trip, I'm actually thinking about after school going and living there for a year or two just to kind of yeah, expand my Chinese even further. And do you want to use it in your job one uh, day? Most definitely. I want to kind of become a uh, go into medicine or something. I feel like being able to um, communicate in more than one language would make it quite a bit easier if, if let's say, the Chinese patient came and I'd be able to kind of explain things a bit better. And... But how much is a foreign language worth to a country? Can it be quantified? I've come to meet Professor Morris Altman, the head of the School of Economics and Finance at Victoria University. Do we need to get to a certain level of fluency before we can actually see some sort of economic benefit? Is it enough to have your ni hao? Well, you have to, one has to be very, very fluent in a particular language to get any economic benefit. If you just have two years of Mandarin, that's not going to do the trick because what you want is to have people who have a nuanced understanding of the language so they could understand what the, for example, the Chinese negotiators or the Chinese business people have to say and understand the nuances behind it from a New Zealand perspective. So you really have to have a very ingrained, intuitive understanding of Mandarin. Professor Altman says it would be a big investment to make. And there are other ways to bridge the divide which might make better economic sense. If one wishes to build that human capital stock in New Zealand, one would facilitate the immigration of people who are well-educated and can feed into the New Zealand system of trade and diplomacy. He also warns of accepting too much help from China. Our understanding of Mandarin, especially when we're thinking about trade and diplomacy, it's important that it becomes nuanced in terms of who we are as New Zealanders. That's why it's important that we take control over this. It's great that the Chinese want to help out, but they're coming at it, as we all do, from their own agenda, their own perspective. This is the um, on-screen display. Roger Latimer admits he hasn't had time to learn Mandarin to do business in China. His company, Technotool, produces high-tech woodworking equipment from its Qingdao base, which he can see via webcam on a huge screen in his offices on Auckland's North Shore. This is the the manufacturing facility outside uh, Qingdao. China's set to be the firm's biggest market in five years' time. It's been operating for six years in China, at first as a joint venture. The company's making use of the growing pool of native Chinese speakers now living in New Zealand. You had to say that the language barrier is it was always a challenge, um, and, that, and the cultural barrier. Uh, so uh, in here, uh, we have uh, sales departments, R&D, and marketing. We have a, a mix of New Zealanders and uh, Chinese. Uh, Fan uh, works in the marketing department. Uh, he's directly, he directly works with the business department in China. Uh, and I'll often, I'll often walk through the office here and he's chatting away. And, and yet I think, I think you're talking to Aina at the moment, is that right? Yeah, yes. So are you from China originally? Yes, I am. I've been here for well, almost nine years now. There's a big benefit to have uh, someone know Chinese to work in here. Nathan's uh, head of R&D. This morning he would have already had his uh, weekly um, meeting with Ken and the R&D department. Um, Nathan? Yes, I have um, yeah, weekly meetings, but probably daily contact with, with the R&D team over there. Mm-hmm. And then they're all English speakers that you deal with? Yes. Yeah. We sort of go over there and we say, oh, we should know more Chinese. But they say, 
um, why bother? With, you know, uh, everyone's uh, keen on uh, uh, learning English, and they, and they strive for it. As a company that's been dealing with China for a few years now, do you think it's necessary to be able to speak Mandarin? It depends on, on what level of involvement you have there. What speaking Chinese does is that it triggers what's the culture behind the language, and that's fundamentally important. Like I've been in China for you know for a, for a while now, and you know if if you ask me honestly, do I really understand you know all the machinations there? I'd have to be honest and say no. It's an education process. First, a recognition that China is important to the everyday New Zealander, and then that um, the education uh, institutions um, you know, provide that sort of course base, and and right you know right through from from young. Uh, 啊,一個麻婆豆腐。麻婆豆腐有沒有肉? I'm sitting with Greg Ford in a Wellington Chinese restaurant. He takes every opportunity to speak Mandarin, even if it's just ordering a meal. He learned the language by immersing himself in life in Taiwan for 5 years, learning it from scratch when he got there. He came away with far more than just the language. The first thing I learned was yes, yeah. And I said that incessantly. Everyone went, yes, 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 yes. Um, and then the first sentence I learned was, Nizashiawoma, which is, are you laughing at me? Um, which was fun because they always giggle when I went in the low Chinese, pointing like an idiot, trying to get things. Uh, I spent the first month there trying to order this, this thing called dumping, which is a rolled up egg pastry. But I called it dabian by accident, which means um, feces. And this was for a month, and the guy laughed every day, but still gave me the dumping. No, normal slipping is just pretty normal. You, the, what they find really offensive is to pick your teeth with a toothpick or something. That's highly offensive. But you can, um, say, eat a plate of chicken and leave the bones lying around the table, or fish, or there's, you can spit beside the table sometimes. Yeah, it's just very different sense of manners, but you've got to understand that, or else you'll fall. Um, because there are things that we do they think are horribly offensive as well. Like what we would consider being good, honest Kiwi straightforwardness, they would find highly offensive. If you had uh, a problem with someone and you told them to their face, um, that would not be a good thing. Guanxi is the the concept of relationship. And it's partly because um, the Chinese culture is more collectivist. We're more individualist. So that's been broken down a bit. But in Chinese culture, everything depends on your relationship with a person. If you're in business with someone, you need to have good going see with them. You need to know who they are. You need to sit down, drink tea, talk, get to know each other before you can really do business because otherwise they don't know who you are and they'll just favor someone they do know or they just won't deal with you or they certainly won't help you out the way they could. As New Zealand seeks to expand its ties with China, Greg Ford finds it surprising he hasn't been able to find a job. In fact, he's been looking for the last 18 months and applied for dozens with no success. He knows of other skilled non-native Mandarin speakers finding it hard to get work. It would be easier, he thinks, to train Mandarin speakers up to do business rather than business people to speak Mandarin. All you need to do is pick them up and show them how your business works and then you've got this fantastic inroads to the biggest market in the world. 
Greg Ford is now considering going to China to work, where, as a native English speaker with fluent Mandarin and perhaps more importantly, highly tuned intercultural skills, he may be more in demand. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Sally Round. It was produced by Philip Atolli with technical production by William Saunders.